The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 24th chapter. Jesus said to the disciples, About that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to all Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us try to imagine how wonderful the words of Isaiah must have sounded to a people who lived under constant threat of war. Swords being beaten into plowshares must have sounded pretty wonderful. While the stories of conquest and fighting are commonplace in the Old Testament, and we can get sort of bored of hearing about yet another war, a war would have been absolutely terrifying for all involved, lest we forget. While no injury or death is, you know, something to look forward to, hand-to-hand combat involving knives and swords and spears would surely have been something that every man would have been terrified of. We have anxiety about, you know, driving safely or eating healthy or completing our tasks or work. Imagine the anxiety that you would possess if brutal warfare was on the horizon. You could only imagine dying at the hands of a spear thrust on the battlefield Uh, or dismemberment at the hands of an enemy, or leaving family and home behind to fend for themselves. Heck, even surviving without antibiotics or sterile operating rooms or morphine sounds pretty terrible. If there was a promise that I would soon no longer have to worry about being drafted into such barbarity, it would seem too good to be true. For the man who just wants to be left alone so he can plant enough food to feed his family and serve his neighbors, witnessing the transformation of swords into plowshares is the stuff that dreams are made of. Now Isaiah is speaking of a time of messianic rule. Whether this prophecy has an immediate and a future application, I'm not sure. You may know that there are, in in the Old Testament tradition, the prophets would speak of things that would happen soon, but that would have the Christians later would go, oh, but I see application in Christ. We see this with the Christmas story, with the birth of 
one who would bring great things to the people of Israel, but also the, the birth of the Christ child. Isaiah does say that all of this in our text will happen in the latter days, meaning this will happen when the Messiah comes. And so a question for us might be, well, now we live after the Messiah has come. And did what Isaiah prophesied actually come to pass? Or is this promise of Isaiah's actually pushed even further into the future, only when Jesus comes again, his second advent, you might say? That is, are the benefits of the Messiah felt now, or will they only be felt at the final judgment, when the people of God enjoy the new heavens and the new earth? Well, certainly Isaiah's prophecy I believe to be fulfilled in all of its fullness, still seems to have a future reality after the final judgment. When he says latter days, I believe those days are still to come. And yet the Messiah did surely bring many gifts to the world. Not every sword has been beaten yet into a plowshare, but a great many have. Jesus, after all, is a peacemaker. And he says that other peacemakers will be blessed, which has surely motivated many a man and woman to be a peacemaker. And while many so-called uh, Christian kings and popes did, in fact, engage in war, they were only proven justifiable if they were defensive wars, which, say, some of the Crusades arguably were. Or, in fact, they were not justifiable at all, and we shouldn't blame Jesus for them. Sadly, much blood was indeed spilled through the centuries, uh, either to defend the innocent or because the egos of man could not be contained. But again, I'm not going to pin that on Jesus. Almost without a doubt, the world has proven to be more peaceful where those uh, who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ believed it and put it into action. Christians who understood the reality of following Jesus uh, find most violence and, of course, sin itself to be intolerable. And so it has been the case, and it will always be the case, that when the teachings of Christ are truly followed, it will be a blessing to all, Christian and non-Christian alike. Christians possess the love of Christ, and the Spirit of God, and as a consequence, they promote the good. Yes, it is true that they even want non-Christians to share in their values, so good are they for all. And indeed, many non-Christians do indeed declare a love in the sort of abstract, perhaps, of our Christian values, Values that they can't defend apart from Christianity, but usually we're willing to allow them to, to borrow from our Christianity uh, to embrace the same values and even virtues that we do. Now this desire, of course, for Christians to, to spread this good news, this love of peace, it often can come with sort of nasty labels, right? We're accused of being judgmental, we're accused of of being, you know, the people who believe that we know best for everyone else. And indeed, if this happens on a big enough scale, you can be accused of being a Christian nationalist, 
This is quite the phrase going around these days. And certainly the use of that phrase is intended to invoke the nationalism of other far less appetizing nationalists, uh, like, say, the Nazis. But I have yet to grow in clarity about which values in particular are so dangerous. Is it the turning of weapons of war into farming equipment? Is that the one? Would that create too many farmers? Maybe it would create a deflation in the price of corn? I don't know. Is it the part where we are to love our neighbors as ourselves? Is that what is so dangerous about Christianity? What about the law of God? Is that what must be avoided? Where we are told not to murder and steal and commit adultery uh, or to covet or to lie? Maybe it's the fruits of the Spirit, as Paul outlines. I won't get all nine of them, but you know, love and joy and peace and uh, gentleness and goodness and self-control. Is it the defense of the unborn? The support of the depressed and suicidal? the, The help of the confused and the abused through a whole variety of Christian ministries? Is that what is so dangerous? Is it the orphanages and the schools, the colleges and universities, the soup kitchens, the homeless shelters, the hospitals, the scholarships, all that have been established in the name of Christ? Is that what must be kept uh, from spreading? Is it the fair dealing, the expectation that the rule of law, that contracts will be honored with no bribery required? Is that what is so irksome? Is it the belief in personal liberty and freedom? The idea that people should be free to pursue virtue of their own accord, to live in peace so long as they do not infringe on the rights of others? Is it the defense of biblical marriage, the creation of children, and the good and necessary provision of a mother and father for their upbringing? I mean, what aspects exactly of Christianity are so terrifying? It must be the consistent voice over and over again against the sinful desires that are manifest among men. Yes, the world wants to shut Christians up because not unlike John the Baptist or even Jesus himself, we are willing to say, No, that is wrong. It is sinful. We don't want it here, and for good reason. For the willingness to be that voice, Christians must be set into a corner, accused of Nazi-like nationalism, and to be ostracized as the true troublemakers, the real problem. Well, as long as I have breath in this pulpit, and as long as you allow me to be in it, because y'all can vote me out at any time, I say no. And I hope many millions of Christians join me. Not that I'm looking to lead a movement, I'm in fact following others. But in our own naivete, we still believe that the rest of the world wants what we want. They do not. Powerful people want to, at best, Tell us how to live according to their values. 
And at worst, they view us as nothing more than pawns in their game of civilization. I frankly have lost patience for all the moral busybodies who think they know better than even Jesus himself. Again, the answer must be no. If we are called to follow someone with values other than Jesus himself. Now, if you think that I'm crazy, then why in the Bible would it have been good news to hear about swords being turned into plowshares? I'll tell you why. Because men, if they can, will go to war. There is no hand of restraint on the powerful if they do not have the Spirit of God. What is needed? Well, in an era of war weapons of immense power, of a global food supply that is incredibly interconnected, we're learning that by the day, we're learning more how things work, supply chains, we used to not worry about such things, they just all kind of magically happen, we're paying attention to these things a little more. Certainly of institutional forces that do not possess a Christian worldview, what is needed now is, well, revival. We've had great awakenings in the past. I'd say we're overdue. The apathetic, occasional, or half-hearted cultural Christianity, or even the benign antipathy towards Christianity, it simply does not have the spiritual muscles to respond to any moment of history where warfare is on the table. So what's the good news? Well, it's here, it's in plain sight. It's in two places. The Messiah does indeed bring peace now. Those who seek, albeit imperfectly, and this group of people may be a small minority, to follow the law of God out of obedience to Christ, they create a better world than even the godless do-gooder with standards that may change by the day. We have and we can, by God's grace, we will continue to build a better world for our families and our neighbors, even our unbelieving neighbors. But certainly the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy will fully be seen when Jesus comes again, when he spares us from our life of sin in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. In the new heavens and the new earth, the lion will graze with the lamb and weapons of war will be used to harvest food. The promise of Christ in this life and the next is always life itself. And this is what will combat and defeat the culture of death the promise of life, now and later. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the third chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. 
In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all along the region of the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Unfortunately for you, every pastor sort of has his uh, hobby horses. You know, the themes that are explored over and over and applied to a whole variety of biblical texts. Uh, It's just a fact of life that we all have our biases and ruts, and they're sort of unavoidable. Uh, For that reason, I would advise you to listen to other pastors on occasion, especially if they're not in Houston. Uh, So, as that practice, you know, will help you get a broader view of the gospel Because you see, I just cannot help but to repeat some of these same themes, and it might get irksome to you. One of my hobby horses is to remind us of the tremendous gifts that Christianity has brought to the world. Imperfectly, to be sure. Uh, And yet, Christians uh, have built a better world as they sought to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. Personal liberty, prosperity, the rule of law, education, health care, and even basic human rights have all enjoyed the brisk wind of Christianity in their sails. I believe that a truly Christian culture is wonderful, full of beauty and truth and sincerity and courtesy. So successful have we been historically that even our still moderately Christian culture remains fairly buttoned up, especially among us humble Lutherans. That is, the Christian virtues of thrift and prudence and modesty and selflessness are still expressed and expected to be followed. It is still considered rude to interrupt or to judge harshly or to use profanity. Well, at least those things used to be considered rude. I'm not so sure anymore. 
But the point is that Christianity brings with it good manners and the standards by which one retains or loses his or her reputation. And one can then lose his reputation if these standards are not upheld, if the social contract is not honored, the social contract that we've all kind of quietly agreed to, right, that we should, for the most part, keep to ourselves, usually keep quiet, work hard, obey the law, do the right thing. Christians have turned our virtue into usually a quiet and modest life. Paul even says that we hope to, we, we should obey authority so that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives. Where our chief value these days seems to be never to offend. And in so doing, we have kind of become prisoners of our own values. That's why John the Baptist, he provides such a stark contrast uh, to what we sort of consider normal and maybe even good, even though Jesus says he is the greatest of all men ever born of woman. In John, you see, there are really no social graces. You know, there, there are no manners. There's no pretensions. Uh, there are no considerations. Right? He calls sin, sin. He calls everyone to repent. And he offends everyone pretty much equally. But he definitely goes after those elitists, right? the upper crust, the most buttoned up of all, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He says that they are a brood of vipers. That means literally their father is a snake. Any, y'all know any, y'all know any stories in the Bible involving snakes, right? So their father, so they are a brood of vipers. He tells them that they cannot seek comfort in their Abrahamic lineage, the thing they took such solace in, the thing that they identified cheaply as. He said, God can make stones out of uh, children of Abraham or he can make children of Abraham out of stones. I mean, this is flat-out insulting behavior. It's the kind of behavior that we would, for the most part, find unimaginable. Um, One can even imagine uh, a Christian minister on the sidewalk saying exactly what John the Baptist says, and the rest of the church saying, you can't say that. We don't do that sort of thing anymore. So the question for us is, when when should we kind of, you know, be like? John the Baptist. Uh, When must we break with our good manners and our good sensibilities that our Christian faith has really done such a good job of inculcating? When do we risk offense and when do we keep quiet? When do we put ourselves in a position that could be embarrassing? When do we risk speaking truth to power? What scares pastors more than anything else is taking the chance to speak the truth, which by definition is going to be controversial, only to lose the support of the congregation, which is why most of us are pretty quiet most of the time. Most of us may talk a big game, especially on something like social media, but we don't actually want to live in the wilderness. You know, we don't actually want to wear you know, camel skin and eat bugs, although apparently eating bugs is quite the rage these days. Uh, It's going to end up in all of our food, from what I hear. But yes, none of us actually want to be John the Baptist if we can avoid it, 
But I hate to tell you that day may come. It may become unavoidable if we are to stay true to Christ. When Christian values and doctrines become the minority legal view, when those values are put in the same category as something like racial discrimination, when uh, the tax-exempt statuses become on the line for Christian organizations that don't hold the now politically correct and enforceable view, then we'll see it. Then the day when we won't have the choice will be upon us. We will have to be John the Baptist. There will be no alternative. When cancel culture comes to the Christian church, when otherwise respectable people spew forth hate on social media, uh, when banks or other platforms begin to pull access, then we will know. Then we will know uh, a little more what it will be like to be like John the Baptist. We'll have to. So the question for you is, are you okay with a little John the Baptist every now and again? Do you have the stomach for it? Do you have the heart for it? It doesn't just mean being controversial for controversy's sake. <laughs> uh, many, many uh, foolish men have confused core Christian doctrines for stupid controversies. That's not what anyone should advocate. And how many have sought the spotlight by making mountains out of molehills for the, you know, so that the press would show up. Uh, you may know that the news never shows up when a Christian church is doing normal Christian things. It's always the people who are seeking attention for the most part. But there is no denying that proclaiming the gospel might cause offense. For if we don't have the stomach for it, then guess who we will have become in the story of John the Baptist? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. We will have become the people. With all the pretense of religion, with all the assurances that God is on our side, with all the assurance that we are following the law, and yet we will be the people who can't tell the truth anymore, who put on a superficial pretense right, for the sake of everyone seeing it. The Sadducees and Pharisees had no, no intention of repenting. They, they, we, we, they knew that going in. But everyone else had already gone to see John, so they better go too, or they would lose the crowd. True repentance will involve living a life that other people will find strange. That's just going to be one of the fruits of repentance. It will have an element of messiness to it. It cannot be perfectly buttoned up. A truly repentant Christian life may very well verge constantly on the edge of acceptability. People should on occasion think that due to your Christian convictions, you may have lost your mind. That might be part of your normal life in the future because you just won't care anymore what people think. You will have repented already of your pretensions and your airs of superiority. Yes, if there is no one in your life right now, in fact, who doesn't think you're a little strange, then you probably aren't doing it right. Uh, remember, Jesus' family uh, thought that he was crazy. That's one of the great stories about his brother James, who wrote the great epistle, James, and who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Everyone gives Peter all the credit for being the, the leader of the early church. Actually, James is more powerful in Acts. Uh, but his brother thought he was crazy. And then he came around to see, oh, no, the resurrected Son of God was, was my own br brother. 
I will follow him now. No doubt John the Baptist had his share of scoffers, uh, as did the prophets in the Old Testament. But here's the irony and the good news, all rolled up into one package. For all of the conflict that we hope to avoid, and for all of the craziness that John the Baptist models, it is actually quite freeing. It is liberating to place yourself at the mercy of God and God alone. For God is merciful and loving. He is tender-hearted and just. God has given us his own son, his very self, that we might not be condemned by God. And so, yes, John may have appeared a little nuts, but no one, no one who has ever lived has ever been more free than John the Baptist. He depended on no one but God. He had nothing left to lose. He didn't care what other people thought about him. And he uh, wasn't afraid of what might be taken from him. What are you going to do? Take my bugs? Yeah. Take my camel skin? He risked offending all for the sake of the coming Messiah. That is real freedom. It's even deeper and truer and richer freedom than e even our wonderful founding documents of our own country can provide. And that is the freedom that is offered to you in Christ. Not only that your sins are forgiven and are no longer counted against you, that is certainly freeing. Not only that you do not need to be ashamed of your sins anymore, that is beyond freeing but that you no longer care what the world thinks. That is the benefit of being forgiven. That's the fruit. Because guess what? If God is for you, then who can be against you? If God himself does not judge you, then why would you care what the world says? So yes, John's message may sound harsh. You know, it does begin with the same word, that the message of Jesus begins with, that the message of the apostles begins with, repent, but repentance buys you freedom. It is not a word of service, but a word that frees you from service. So when the kingdom of God does indeed arrive, you will be ready, and you will already be free. Amen.